Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. And we're happy to have you with us today. Tom, we want to continue to talk about this social justice and the gospel statement. Uh, things are a little hot right now. Well, people uh, are reading it and reading about it. And so, yeah, we're getting some feedback on it, which is good. There's a lot of steam out there on Twitter. Well... That's what Twitter does. <laughs> That's what Twitter's good Twitter for. Twitter steams. <laughs> it's better to just keep your head down out there. <clears throat> but there, it, hopefully we can dig down into the actual affirmations and denials because there's some really good stuff in here. And we want to take Article 1 today, and that is on Scripture. There are both affirmations and denials. I'm going to read um, the affirmation, and then let's talk about it a bit. Sounds good to me. The statement says, We affirm that the Bible is God's Word breathed out by Him. It is inerrant, infallible, and the final authority for determining what is true, what we must believe, and what is right, how we must live. All truth claims and ethical standards must be tested by God's final word, which is Scripture alone. Why Scripture first in the statement? Because Scripture is our authority. I mean, this is the foundation of what we believe and where we get our convictions, all of our doctrines. Uh, our practices must be measured in light of Scripture. So this is a fundamental uh, reality for all Christians, and all of our uh, orthodoxy and orthopraxy needs to arise out of God's written Word. We live by revealed truth, right? Um, but I got friends, and um, I know what some of them might say here, there's language about uh, the difference between sola scriptura and what some would call solo scriptura, or uh, perhaps nuda scriptura. And the difference being uh, sola scriptura acknowledges that scripture is our final authority, just like mm -hmm. the affirmation states, whereas a, maybe a solo scriptura or a nuda scriptura would say that it is our only uh, authority. Mm -hmm. uh, but we believe that God speaks through creation. He has revealed himself through uh, creation and he has revealed himself through uh, the word of God. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul um, stand before folks and say, uh, who here believes that um, the Bible is uh, God's word and has no errors? And everybody raised their hand. And then he said, uh, who here believes that uh, creation is God's revelation and that he uh, also speaks authoritatively and without error through that? And everybody put their hands down. And he said, it's the same God who's revealing it. We can, we can uh, uh, misunderstand both books here. But uh, the statement actually says that the Word of God is the final authority for determining what is true. So this is not uh, new to Scriptura, is that right? Yeah, of course not. And even with uh, R.C. Sproul, I'm sure he would give the caveat that uh, sin has affected creation. And so we can look at creation and easily be led astray by creation where we cannot accurately look at God's Word and be led astray. The Word of God is not... Uh, it's not affected by error. They're not equally authoritative N sources. Not at all. Yeah, not at all. That's why the statement goes on to say, all truth claims and ethical standards must be tested by God's final word, which is Scripture alone. So uh, when the heavens declare the glory of God and we observe something from a creation that is true, we still need to test that truth claim by 
the authoritative book. Yeah, it will be in harmony with what God has written. Very good. Um, what about the denial portion? You got that in front of you? Can you read that to us? I do. We deny that Christian belief, character, or conduct can be dictated by any other authority. And we deny that the postmodern ideologies derived from intersectionality, radical feminism, and critical race theory are consistent with biblical teaching. We further deny that competency to teach on any biblical issue comes from any qualification for spiritual people other than clear understanding and simple communication of what is revealed in Scripture. So we're wanting to be real clear here that uh, though there are various philosophies and other authorities in the world, that Christian belief, Christian character, and Christian conduct can only be dictated by the authority of God's Word and not by these other authorities. I know you've looked into some of these uh, elements that are mentioned here, Jared. So do you want to give us a little uh, take on what we mean by critical race theory? Yeah, I uh, have read Robert Delgado's book, An Introduction to Critical Race Theory. and um, Is it Robert or Richard? I don't know. Which one is it? I'm Richard? not sure. I was just, I I'm think it's Richard. Sure. Let's say Delgado. Mr. Mr. Delgado. Maybe doctor. Um, and my understanding is I don't think he's a believer, um, but he does say that the, the critical race theory is indebted to radical feminism. So right off the out, at the outset, there's an acknowledgement um, of that uh, history and uh, foundation to the thinking. Some of the things that stuck out to me is there is talk about intersectionality. You talked about that in our last podcast. I'll probably leave that for people to go back to if they want to hear more about that. Um, but I believe they called it a um, unique voice of color. And in, in that one core tenet of critical race theory, Delgado went on to explain that uh, people of color are more competent to speak to issues of racism uh, than other people who are not people of color. And immediately what stuck out to me is, boy, people have suffered and gone through something well, we want to hear from them. We want to hear about their sufferings. We want to uh, be sympathetic. We want to learn and be educated by those. But the concern is that um, there is um, not only a call to give ear to those who have suffered, but then claiming that because of someone's skin color, they're more competent to speak to an issue than other people are. I think we're going to get in... Uh, and a lot of hot water quickly if we buy into that kind of idea. So that was one thing that concerned me about uh, critical race theory. But it seems like, uh, collectively speaking, at least certain sectors of evangelicalism are already in such hot water. Are they not? I mean, this this is exactly what our friend Bodie Balkum warns about when he speaks of ethnic Gnosticism, that there's some knowledge, some information, some insight that cannot be accessed by others unless you have a specific ethnicity. Yeah, that's going on. And I, I, I think what's important to see is that it kind of has a history. Of, if I'm understanding critical race theory correctly, it's closely related to critical legal theory. And then it goes all the way back to Max Horkheimer in critical theory, uh, developed very much uh, along with the Frankfurt School, which uh, from the little bit that I've dabbled into it appears to be... Um, highly influenced by German idealism or a philosophy that is untethered from objective truth. So the idea being, since we don't have an objective standard 
well, then we need to assess our culture or our organization, our situation, um, just from what we can observe and see around us. And so you kind of develop um, different standards. If you don't have an objective standard of truth to return to, well, then it would be natural to begin assigning competency uh, to other things rather than those objective standards. So I think when you see the roots um, of critical race theory, there's reason to be suspicious about buying in to some of the core tenets of that movement. So would you recommend that every evangelical read Delgado's book? I don't know if I'd recommend that every evangelical read the book. I think it's something that is um, going on now. So it it might be helpful to read Delgado's book to understand more of this movement. But uh, I wouldn't promote that um, evangelicals um, buy into the core principles of critical race theory as Delgado uh, explains them in his book. So you're not advocating what he is teaching in his book, but recognizing there may be wisdom in learning some of the things that he's saying. Yeah, well, it was fascinating for me to explore it a little bit and try to look at the history. It helped me to see uh, some of the dangers that I didn't immediately see. There were <laughs> some of the things that were being said um, maybe sound good in, in the beginning, not from Delgado's book, but just some of the things in the broader culture. Mm -hmm. You hear these things about equality and, well, you think, well, that sounds really good. Well, as I explored some of Delgado's book, I started seeing uh, some of the um, the roots of things that are being said that were uh, helpful and helped me think clearly. Very good. This uh, denial also acknowledges that competency to teach Scripture arises for spiritual people, meaning people who have the Holy Spirit, born-again people, on the basis of clear understanding and simple communication of the Scripture. So it's not based upon uh, any experience, any kind of inherent, inherent distinctiveness that might set a person apart from someone else, but rather on, again, the authority of Scripture. If Scripture is authoritative, then the people who help us most are those spiritually-minded people who teach it accurately. Yeah, I mean, think this is the way that uh, Christians are to think. We have an objective standard of truth, and that is the Word of God. It's the final authority. doesn't have any errors, and therefore we're bringing every truth claim to bear upon the Word of God. We don't have to make up um, other standards um, from which to operate. And so someone who could claim that uh, they have greater insight because of their experience or because of their ethnicity or because of their background. If they do not teach the word accurately, then they have no more authority in their teaching um, than anyone else. We, we don't grant them authority simply because of those uh, external kinds of characteristics. That's right. Well, Tom, we want to talk about a book. A book. You have one in mind, I'm sure. Um, we want to talk about a book by Jonathan Edwards uh, called The End for Which God Created the World. This is, I would say, one of my favorite books. When did you read it? Um, probably, I don't know, eight years ago. Something like that. Okay. Maybe eight, nine years ago. That's probably about uh, eight or nine years 
sooner than what I have read it. So it's been a while. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a lot that Edwards does in the book, but one of the things that have stuck with me is the way that he talks about the glory of God. The main point of the book is that God has created the world for his own glory. This was the end that God had in view as he created the world. And generally speaking, that's that's terribly helpful when we think about the world in which we live. What's it all about? Mm. What am I all about? It's uh, not about you. It's not about <laughs> me. It's about the glory of God. Uh, and yet he has um, brought his people into this exaltation of his own glory in the mm. world, that we're to be caught up into that. And at the end, I think it's at the end of the book where Edwards talks about God's glory in, in four different dimensions, that might be the right word to use. God's glory concerns uh, the excellencies of his perfections, and it, it has the idea of weight to it. This is his weightiness, his magnificence, his glory. And Edward says that uh, there is, we can think of God's glory as his inherent glory, which is infinite and cannot be added to. Uh, the second category is his revealed glory or his displayed glory. So in creation, he is, he is, he is displayed just how excellent and marvelous he is. The third category is his realized glory. And there Edwards draws out the point that there are creatures created in God's image, human beings. We can behold the magnificence of God in creation. Uh, we can apprehend his glory. Uh, he opens up our eyes so that we can see uh, the truth about who he is. And then the fourth category is God's praised glory. As human beings realize the glory of God, uh, we turn then and praise the glory, stand in awe of what he's done. So I think very much like 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, that we behold um, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we do, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And uh, that helps explain, too, the scripture passages that tell us to give God glory. We can't give him his essential glory, but rather we can ascribe to him the glory that is essential to him. One of the things Edwards does there, and he does elsewhere as well, is he, he says, yes, the, the world has been created by God for God, and it is not primarily about man's happiness, but man's happiness has been wedded to God's glory. So God has so ordered the world that our greatest happiness is found in his glory and in recognizing that glory. And what he's doing, I think, is taking the, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism first question and showing us the, the beauty and harmony of it. Piper's tried to do this by changing it a little bit that uh, uh, what is the chief end of man is to glorify God by Mm -hmm. or, by enjoying by enjoying him forever yeah but the shorter catechism says to glorify god and enjoy him forever but it is one end it's not two things you know it's not what the chief ends of man are it's what the chief end of man is and edwards just makes it clear in this book that god's glory our, our happiness as creatures made in god's image is bound up in his glory yeah this is kind of a key uh, guiding light for the way i think about um, Christian growth and sanctification. I feel like it protects me from uh, legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other hand. To think, I want to behold the glory of God in Christ and in so doing, 
be transformed into uh, his image from one degree of glory to the next. So coming to the word, I pray in the morning, oh God, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your law, wondrous things in your word. Show me how glorious you are. And by meditation upon the scriptures, I'm reminded of who God is and um, recognizing that I'm never going to um, fully know the glory of God. It's something that um, I'm always pressing up farther into and uh, just standing in awe and realizing that I can't short circuit this process. I can't just, you know, read my Bible and say a prayer. Mm -hmm. I, I need to read the word and um, have God work on me by his spirit that I would apprehend more and more just what an amazing God he is. Excellent. Is this book available as a single title? Uh, Piper's got a version. I think it's called God's Passion for His Glory. I right. think it's a Crossway publication, and uh, I read that one. Very helpful. Piper's got some good footnotes in there. So. Yeah, he. I think the first half of the book, he actually gives his take on the book, and then it has Edward's whole text. Yeah, highly recommend it. All right. For this third segment, we're going to continue looking at the Ten Commandments, and uh, today we are on the Second Commandment, taken from Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, does this second commandment then just tell us that we're not to have carved images and we're done with that once we avoid that? Yeah, look, just don't get any chisels out and you'll be good. Yep. You'll be clear of the second commandment. Keep the icons free from the sanctuary. Keep the icons free from the sanctuary. This second commandment uh, concerns the way in which we worship God. There are duties upon us given the second commandment. We're to um, observe the religious worship of our God, including the ordinances, in a way that is appointed in his word. So we should um, sing and pray and preach uh, in our corporate gatherings, and we should uh, worship God individually as well. Uh, in the way that God has prescribed for us to do so. So God cares how we worship. He does, which is can kind of land on our modern ears as like, what? I mean, he cares mean, what he cares what colored lights we I use. Can't just, this is just come as you are here, Tom. This is a come <laughs> as you are congregation. We're not even doing all those things. <laughs> that w would you say God regulates our worship? He regulates our worship. Yeah, he regulates our worship. You got to come in a tie. So God has an opinion about what we do when we worship. He does, but... I'm trying to think of other ways I could say this. You've got to quickly realize that I was joking about the tie. I'm not <laughs> saying that God, that God has prescribed that we wear ties, but he has given us So what's order. the Okay, so what has he prescribed versus what hasn't he prescribed when we come to worship? Uh, he has prescribed that uh, we read his word, that we preach his word, that we pray that we baptize, 
that we attend the Lord's Supper. I think individually, we've got things like uh, fasting and prayer and those sorts of things. Singing. Well. So there are elements of worship that the Bible lays out that we should take as prescriptions. This is what must be done. And then there are incidental things like we don't necessarily have to have wooden pews or we don't have to have a microphone or uh, we don't have to meet at a certain time on the Lord's Day. Those things would be incidental to what God's prescribed. So, I mean, how seriously should we take this point that God cares about how we worship? I think we should take it seriously. I think we should also acknowledge that um, some people, perhaps in an effort to take it seriously, um, misapply it or misunderstand it. You know, some people can go uh, overboard in thinking about the regulative principle and things like that. The majority of folks probably just don't think about it at all. But I, I think there's there is a beauty in this second commandment, as we talked about the beauty in the first commandment, that our God is a God of order. Uh, he has told us to come to worship him in spirit and in truth. He has told us to come and worship him in his son, Jesus Christ, and by his spirit. I mean, that's a, a glorious thing when we think God is, uh, he, he's not a God of uh, chaos and disorder, uh, but we come to him. Um, rendering to him the honor that is due his name in the way that he's told us to do it. Um, surely um, we fall short in our own worship, but um, God is kind to us in that he's given us instructions and in how we are to come to him. So what about the reasons attached to this? It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. I mean, that's a... It's pretty intense. It's frightening, isn't it? It is intense. Usually that when people cite this reason, they stop right where I stopped, but that's not where the text stops. So it doesn't just say visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. It says of those who hate me. Yeah, this kind of goes back to the end for which God created the world, doesn't it? Um, God is uh, zealous about his own worship. That seems to be the... Uh, one point that jumps out to me when we think about the reasons given for this second commandment, uh, he is passionate about his own glory and that he would be glorified by his people on earth. Does this mean then that uh, we're being punished today for our great-great-grandfather's sins? I don't know. Does it, Tom? No. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't. Only if we hate him. <laughs> so to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, but showing steadfast love to thousands, or we could say thousands of generations, to those who love him and keep his commandments. And mm. so this is not to be used as it so often is misused by those who would say that there are uh, generational punishments for your ancestors' sins. Mm. Yeah, generous. But would you say that there are um, blessings that will flow down to my children, perhaps even my grandchildren, um, blessings yeah. that flow if um, I'm faithful, if I'm fear God and keep his commandments? Absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. There are both benefits and detriments that flow down based upon that. But the great-grandchildren will not be punished for the great-grandfather's sins just as the great-grandchildren will not be blessed with everlasting blessings for the great-grandfather's faith. 
though there are definite uh, benefits and deficits that flow. And so you and I are receiving great benefits from those who have gone before us because we're sitting here in air conditioning rather than sweltering out in the Florida heat. And that's through the kindness of God to our forefathers. Amen. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org.